Enter now the age of apocalypse, Shiga, with your hosts, Day Spring and Scott Free. Xavier is dead. Apocalypse reigns. This is the age of apocalypse. Guys, my guest today is a writer, podcaster, and world's foremost Batmanologist. He's been the co-writer for comics such as Deadpool, Bad Blood, and X-Men 92, the latter of which launched during Hickman's Secret Wars back in 2015. He is a prodigious podcaster, hosting shows like Movie Fighters and Xeno Warrior Business. But most importantly, he and ex-editor Jordan D. White host my favorite podcast ever, Sailor Business, which is a podcast dedicated to the legendary anime Sailor Moon. It is with such great pleasure I welcome Chris Sip. What, what an intro. What an introduction. <laughs> Fantastic. I'm, I'm such a fanboy. Like, I can't believe I'm seeing you right now. No, this is like, I am. A, I mean, I might put on some sunglasses and threaten to walk out. You make me sound like <laughs> such a big deal. <laughs> you're such a diva yeah get that get that good that hey did you hear about christmas he walked out on that podcast <laughs> that, that reputation going Pe- oh. people will talk oh i love that i would like i would like promo the shit out of that i mean like x-men 92 <laughs> writer chris sims just walked out of this podcast he pulled an rdj <laughs> you remember when rdj did that during an interview because they were asking him some like personal questions and he's here like, dude, what are you doing here? <laughs> like, yeah, we're here to yeah. talk about Avengers. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, like the, thank you for uh, saying such nice things about, uh, about uh, Sailor Business. Uh, I, I, it took me a minute when you called Jordan an ex-editor, I was like, did Jordan get fired? And I didn't know about it, did quit? And I was like, oh no, it's, it's the letter, the capital letter and a dash. <laughs> Got well, it. It, well, I I was gonna toy with it and say ten editor because obviously now we have ten of swords and power of ten. And Jordan mentioned power of X Men on Sailor Business recently, and you said power of ten. Power of ten, yeah, <laughs> and, yeah. Which I love so much. That is the okay. I love it when comics are smart. Yeah. I love it way more when comics are so dumb they're smart again. <laughs> and I feel like, like, and I mean this, I do not mean this in any sort of rude way. I love everybody who works on those books. And I like, uh, I've known Hickman for years cause he's, uh, he's a Carolina guy as well. Oh, uh, he is? I didn't yeah. know that. Uh, we like, he actually gave me a ride, uh, ride home from San Diego one time. Like we, uh, oh we, God. We were on the same flight back to Charlotte and then he drove me down uh, to Columbia. And uh, uh, like, but but I know, I can see his face when he was like, you know, it's called Powers of 10. <laughs> and I know that, like, I know he did that because we did the exact same thing in 92. Yeah. Uh, where if you look, we have, there is an issue uh, that's called uh, X out of X. Mm-hmm. It's called 10 out of 10. Yeah, like, I, we thought that would, we, we had a great time coming up with the issue titles for that okay. uh, series. 
Well, uh, A, you love titles. I listen to Sailor Business <laughs> religiously. Yes. And I love that you come up with, after the D Cloverway series or dub ended, you guys started coming up with your own titles. And that is hysterical watching you or listening to you guys come up with those titles. It's fun. And, and, and it's also like a thing that I don't think people realize that they recognize that because it's something you never think about. You're just like, yeah, that's what, like, that's the kind of names the Sailor Moon episodes have, but they yeah. don't like the, the Japanese episodes have those multi-part two sentence. Here is exactly what the spoiler, like, like Usagi dies? Question mark? Like, <laughs> Usagi's the, last light, you know? Yeah, the, the end of Queen Barrel, Usagi wins. And it's like, Ooh, is that what you're going to call it? Okay. But then the Deke ones, I always think of uh, of the one that they did for Moon Animate Makeup, which if, if people don't know, that's when a bunch of animators took an episode of Sailor Moon and they each had like 10 seconds, six seconds, something like that. And so it's these, yeah. these you know, hundreds of editor or, uh, animators making in sequence an episode of Sailor Moon. Like they use the same. Which uh, was so great. Yeah, it was they, beautiful. And they, and they did it twice, uh, but the, the first one they did it with, the episode is called Fractious Friends. And that's not a, that, that's not a word anyone uses. <laughs> but it's got that no one uses and awkwardness. Yeah, no one would ever say like, oh, you know, Soggy and Ray, they're so fractious. <laughs> oh, Charles and Magneto, they're just so, so very fractious friends. Uh, but yeah, like I, and I actually run into that with, uh, with other stuff too, because I'm also a big Star Trek guy. Uh, Are you a Trekkie? My last, dude, my last sure. three guests have been huge Trekkies. I'm not a big Trekkie. I, I'm not I, a Trekkie, period. Oh, buddy, let me, let me, let me see. <laughs> Are you going to scold me? I'll get you started. Uh, I've actually, uh, I have a friend who has never watched really any Star Trek. And he was like, hey, you know, I kind of want to start watching Next Generation. And I was like, cool let me guide you. And so like Monday nights are now Trek night. Like my wife and I, we hop on uh, a FaceTime call with him and, and we were watching through Star Trek. And so I have been watching, we're watching through Next Generation, but I, because once I start watching it again, I'm like, oh, right. This is, this is a thing I have literally, I've loved since <laughs> fourth grade. Uh, like I, I start watching the other stuff. So I'm actually going through Voyager for the first time. But if you go back to the original series, all of those episodes have these proper mid-century sci-fi names that are so lofty and so, oh I mean, honestly, Claremontian, like you know, <laughs> who mourns for Adonais uh, <laughs> is, is one of those. And, uh, oh, what's the, what's the, the other one? Don't forget. It's, it's going to take me a minute, but uh, I actually played a game on one of my podcasts where I made my co-host Matt Wilson uh, guess if something was the title of an episode of Star Trek, an episode of The Prisoner, or an episode of G.I. Joe. Because weirdly yeah. enough, the G.I. Joe cartoon from the 80s also has that kind of title. Really? Oh, yeah. See, I haven't seen G.I. Joe either. Yeah. Those, are, those are things I'm a, I'm a big fan of, I gotta say. I think, I think <laughs> G.I. Joe the comic really holds up. G.I. Joe the yeah. show has its moments, I think. Oh my. 
I have to watch it. You know, like the 80s, I was watching, what was I watching? I was watching Gem and the Holograms, obviously. Love it. Uh, love it. I love Gem and the Have you seen the uh, drag queen version where someone took Gem and the Holograms and they do a drag queen like voiceover and she's called Jizz and the Mammograms? It is, I have not. That sounds about right. It is not safe for work. It is very obscene humor that would get people in trouble in today's world. However, it made you laugh so much in like the early 2000s. I literally have next to each other on my shelf. I, I would get up, but that's too far away. But like, I've got the Star Trek box set, the Gem box set, and the Sailor Moon box sets oh, right man. next to each other. So, and and the, GI, the big G.I. Joe Foot Locker that yeah. has like, all the DVDs in it, which is a wild thing. That's wild, man. But like, dude, like, again, I can't believe I'm talking to you because I love Sailor Business so much. Like I said, anyone who's listened to previous episodes of this podcast knows that this podcast exists because of you and Jordan, because I had so much fun hearing you guys kiki and bringing on a guest. And I just love that you created your own space and you talked about Sailor Moon and you set your own rules for it. And one of those rules was, which I love, so much that you would only have a female guest on the show. Yes. Uh, and part of that was because, uh, like, it was actually suggested by uh, uh, someone, he was my editor at Comics Alliance at the time, but he uh, then became an editor at DC Comics, Andy Corey. Because mm-hmm. uh, he was like, like, I told him we were about to launch the podcast, and he was like, yeah, you know you can't just be two dudes talking yeah. about Sailor Moon. And I was like, yes, yes, I do. We have a plan. <laughs> uh, and, and that was it because that is a that is a show that obviously means an awful lot to me like like i you know my, my first my first tattoo was uh my tattoo. Tattoo. i don't think i feel like i have seen it or like i googled it when you mentioned it on the show but i've never seen i knew you had the the hands yeah i i, I had to figure out a way to get a sailor moon tattoo that would not make <laughs> me a dude with an anime girl tattooed on his body <laughs> So I got her hands doing the uh, Shakyo. Uh, and I got, I got that tattoo on the way to see the uh, American tour of the Sailor Moon live stage show. Where, where did so, you see it? Washington. Okay, I saw it in New York. Mm. Yeah, yeah. I, I've had a lot of people ask me, oh, were you at the New York show? And no, it was Washington. But like, <laughs> what a great, what a great experience. So I'm that... sitting there with like, you know, my tattoo all wrapped up, like watching the show. <laughs> that's that's yeah. Sailor Moon. Uh, but Dude, the also, intro of the I'm sorry to cut you off I just please. I don't really talk to anyone who's seen the live show but that intro where they go through the manga and they introduce everyone and like people are clapping at the various characters who are coming off like Sailor Mercury, Mars and their manga clips and when Sailor Venus came on the entire crowd started erupting going crazy and at that time I was knee deep into Sailor Business and I was like Everyone loves Minako, but girl doesn't have a personality personality until Super S when yeah, she becomes really horny. <laughs> you know? I also like Minako, but I, I experienced the same thing. And I was like, hmm, that's interesting. <laughs> I like, love Minako, don't get me wrong. Venus is probably my favorite inner senshi, but she's great, but like she like I feel like she is primarily great when she had her own comic. <laughs> oh, I love Codename Sailor, Sailor is great. Yeah. It's so great. I have to do a reread of that. But anyways, I cut you off. What as you were saying. Uh yeah, so like as as important as that show is to me, as important as it has been to my life, like I also recognize that I am not who that show is for. 
and I am a I am a straight cis white guy, and I feel like it is important to acknowledge that a I can you know appreciate this thing and, and have this thing that's very very important to me without without trying to to co-opt it you know like obviously yeah. being the host of the podcast I like obviously I am centering myself in the discussion <laughs> but I also feel like if I'm going to do that and if I want to have this thing where I talk about Sailor Moon and why I love it so much like I say in every episode uh, then I need to at the very least use that to bring in other voices uh, yeah. which has been great like it's it's I think it has it's made the show better, honestly. Yeah. Uh, I, it's, it's made me a lot of really good friends. Uh, there, are, there are at least like four people that I either met through uh, Sailor Viz or uh, became much, much closer to through Sailor Viz, uh, including Ali Stock, who's my co-host on Xena Business, a show that similarly, <laughs> I am maybe not the type of person for whom it is the most important. Uh, but it was weird because it's, I'm trying to think of a diplomatic way to say this other than dudes are terrible. Uh, <laughs> but like, you know. Yeah, uh, yeah, it was, I get like, it. It's so weird because we would always have uh, men write in wanting to be guests yeah. who would be like, uh, yeah, I like the show. I used to watch it. Can I be a guest? And I would be like, no, like if you listen to the show. <laughs> Like, if you listened, you'd know from episode one, that was one of our rules that we instituted. Yeah, we say it up front. Yeah. Uh, but then I would have women writing in and being like, hey, uh, I ran a Sailor Moon web ring. And I was uh, like, I was a, I ran a, a Sailor Moon fanfic site and I was a cosplayer. And I uh, wrote a published Sailor Moon novel and... Uh, oh, like all kinds Leanne of things. Like, Senator, yeah, she actually we got in contact with. But well, no, um, I know because you were like obsessed with the books. I, I and finding out she was like her. super young when she wrote them was amazing. She was seventeen. The, seventeen. Yeah, yeah. Like they gave a seventeen-year-old a book publisher gave a seventeen-year-old a book deal, and I used to work in book publishing, so that like blows my mind. Like it's, for it's kind of perfect though, right? Because it's yeah. it's the most authentic way to do that. Yeah, uh, but we would. Have, but like, she nailed it. She made those deadlines, and I've only great. skimmed those books. But like, she did it. The books are a little weird, but they have a lot of character to them. And yeah. I honestly don't think if the they would have been again not to be rude, but like farmed out to people yeah. who were like kind of packaging tie-in novels, yeah. uh, who would see it as more of like, oh, this is my nine to five. Yeah, uh, I don't think they would have had that same character. I don't think they would have had that. Like, I don't think I would be reading them 20 years later. <laughs> but, uh, but back to my, what I was saying, we had these women write in who were cosplayers, who were active in the fandom, who had did, done translations. And like, they were like, I was a fan translator. I, you know, went to Japan and got the episodes and brought them back. Uh, and then like all of these emails went in with like, I don't know if I'm qualified to be a guest though. And I'm like, that's. You're like, you're more than qualified. You need to have the confidence of this guy who's like, yeah, I like the show. I want to talk about it. Break your <laughs> one rule on the show for me. Like, no, you like you are infinitely more qualified yeah. and, and fascinating. Uh, lots of of really, really great guests came out that way, and it's and uh, a lot of people who were like just so nervous they like end the show and they're like, oh, I'm sorry if I uh, if I talk too much. And I'm like, you were the guest. Like <laughs> I like you need to talk more than me 
honestly. Yes. Uh, so, you know, in case you were wondering if if the socialization of women, like the complaints behind about that were uh, real, yes, yes they are. I know. Uh, but it, I, I, it, was weird, it was weird to see that up close as, again, me, <laughs> to yeah. get to see that working firsthand and get more of an understanding about it and kind of come to the understanding that, oh, this is something that I should make a better effort to do is to at, at least share the spotlight. <laughs> yeah. The least I can do. No, it's, it, I, Sailor Business has such a great vibe and I, and, and I, I don't want to be a contrarian because obviously the show back in 92 was made and marketed for, you know, 14 year old like Japanese schoolgirls, but I remember when I was probably like 12 and I was getting into Sailor Moon and I was reading Anime Rika. I believe that was the name of the magazine, at least in my head canon, it was pronounced like that. And they did like America. Anime Rekka, there we go. <laughs> Anime Rekka. And I was, there was this article of this man who is now like my age, like 37, and he was talking about how. He is a big Sailor Moon fan and he looks at his cat and he's just waiting for his cat to talk. And it's all about his journey about being this like older middle-aged like white dude obsessed with Sailor Moon. And, and that just framed it for me at a time that I was just like, oh, everyone loves Sailor Moon. So I'm never shocked when I see like two dudes like you and Jordan liking it or someone like me who's LGBTQI+. Or like newer fans coming in who are like five years old, you know, like I just feel that's the beauty of Sailor Moon. It just like appeals to so many people. The experience that I have, by the way, uh, the Star Trek episode title I was thinking of was "For the World Is Hollow and I Have Touched the Sky." <laughs> oh my god! Great one, season three. Uh, but the experience that I had, like first encountering Sailor Moon, um, was there was this magazine that was very brief in the uh, early to mid nineties uh, called Flux. And it was like- I remember, and was yeah, it, it was like double X? Yeah, maybe. maybe, I don't know. I know what you're talking about. But it was like comics, video games, and heavy metal. And yeah. It was super bro yeah. And they had like an anime guide in one of them. And like, I was like 12, uh, like reading it. And it, Sailor Moon was described as like a popular anime from Japan that's about teen girls who transform into superheroes and their transformation involves them getting naked and then, oh my God. And then you know, being gradually enveloped in these schoolgirl outfits. And I was like, again, at 12 years old, I was like, well, I'd like to see that. <laughs> and then I watched it and it's like, that's not, I mean, I guess technically that is half accurate, but like, I was like, oh, this is not what they described it as. But it is a superhero show, and I do love superheroes. So <laughs> let me go ahead and get obsessed with this for a little while. Like, I read, I remember reading a ton of fanfic. Uh, like, uh, my my wife and I both had the experience of seeing like later season characters like Sailor Iron Mouse and and uh, Sailor Aluminum Siren, uh, and being like, oh, these are OCs. These are people's yeah. fanfic characters that they've made up. Like, you know, getting like when they were uh, printing the comics in America where she was called Bunny. Uh, oh, I know, in Mixine. Yeah, it, it, exactly, in it, uh, old mix. That I had love, two X's. That had two X's. I love the mix adaptations because I feel like they did capture that kind of silliness from that's supposed to, that gets lost in translation. 
that they were supposed to have. Like, I believe Ray, even in like the manga, in the mixed manga, says that she's a fan of Buffy as well, in lieu of whatever she said um, in the original source material. And it, it translated well, but I loved like also the mistakes they made, like Sailor Satan instead of Sailor Saturn. And I don't know. I, I have a lot of good memories of finding those at like Virgin Megastore. And they they started releasing Super S, the Super S manga, in a magazine called Smile Magazine. Mm, yeah. And they were trying to like have it like how they used to uh, release them in Japan, where it would just be like in a magazine and then you get the next issue. But then they just gave up on that formula. And then like the, the volumes just came out and they still hadn't even got into S on the other side. So you had Sailor Moon, you had Sailor Moon R, and then you just started with Super S. It was like, it was such a weird printing schedule. I, I don't, I don't love to, to be like, oh, you kids today. Uh, <laughs> but you, as some, like I'm, I'm 38. And so you and I can commiserate on this, but like you kids today, you don't know how no good you idea. have it. Where, like if you if you were at all interested in anime, Something. you had to you had to pay like forty dollars for a VHS tape two episodes. No, yo, I had to call up like these anime stores in San Francisco. So I was already doing a long distance call that my parents were like already furious about. I had to talk to like a store owner. I yeah, was, long like, distance 12. also used to be a yeah. thing. Yeah, kids. that was a thing, kids. Like you had to dial one and the area code, all that stuff. It was so weird. And then, like, I had to talk to a store owner, and I just had, like, this squeaky 12-year-old voice. And he'd be like, well, we have Sailor Moon Super S, you know, volume one, and that's, like, $60. And I was like, oh, I don't think I can afford that. And then he would, like, literally pull the phone close. He goes, I can make you a copy for $20. <laughs> and so I would make my mom write a check for $20. And like mail it to this random guy in San Francisco who owned like an anime store. And then like three weeks later, I got like a bootleg version of the first like Super S episodes and stuff yeah, like that. Because because like that's how you it, did it. And keep in mind, Sailor Moon was as it is now like one of the most popular anime and manga series of all time. Like it's I agree. huge, and that's what you had to to do. To try and get your hands on it, dude. We and had to, we had we had SOS. We had save our sailors. Save our sailors. <laughs> we yes. had save our sailors, and you were hoping. Oh. It was biscuits getting excited about uh, uh, save uh, our biscuits. sailors, man. But like that's what you had to do, and like kids today don't understand. And I say that too on like my other episodes, especially with X Men. Like I was talking with Zeb Wells, and he was saying that like the reason why these characters mean so much to older fans is because you would have to be a little archaeologist. You would have to go to the comic book store. You'd have to hope they have the issue you want. And then you discover a new a new character. And for the longest time, you had no idea who that character was unless you went out and you actively sought that information. That's Not Wikipedia. excellent. Wikipedia didn't exist back then, kids. That is an excellent segue because that is like, that was my experience with X-Men. Yeah, uh, which is that you know I I loved comics, I loved superheroes. Uh, I was always like uh, when I was younger, and I mean you mentioned like me being uh, a Batmanologist, which is just the name you give yourself when you're a big fan. And you, I didn't know you were that big of a Batman fan. Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, I know Turns you guys out. have talking uh, talked about Batman on the podcast, but I didn't know you were that big of a fan. Oh no, I've been I've been on television 
in my capacity as a Batman <laughs> expert. I was on The Daily Show once as a Batman expert. Uh, I think I actually did know that. I'm yeah. sorry. Yes. Uh, but like, I, if you uh, go get Glenn Walden's fantastic book, The Caged Crusade, which is about uh, the rise of Batman and the rise of nerd culture, uh, you will find like that I was interviewed for that. Like Glenn, Glenn and I had a really fun conversation for an hour that amounted to like three sentences in the book. But, uh, but yeah, like, but I also, you know, I was a big Spider-Man fan as well. And I remember, uh, you know, 1992, 10 years old, the, uh, the X-Men cartoon starts airing in September of that year on Fox. And, uh, or no, October of that year, September was Batman. Uh, and like, I remember seeing it and then going and like picking up a comic and the, like if the show did one thing really well, it was that it really captured the feel of those 90s comics. Oh, but yeah. I would go and read those comics and I, I, I had the feeling like there were all these different characters, stuff was going on that people were talking about that I didn't know about because it was in the middle of a story because it was always in the middle of a story. And I, was, I, I had the feeling, oh, I'll never understand this. I will never fully understand, no matter how many comics I read, I will never know what is happening in this book. I will never you will never it. know who Madeline Pryor really is. Right. Honestly, still don't. Still, like still for an 11 year old? <laughs> in like 1992, like a 10, 11-year-old trying to figure out, okay, so Jean Grey died because she was possessed by the Phoenix, but it actually wasn't her. But then the Phoenix spun around the globe, found her cloned body, that became her own entity, gave birth to their child, but then Jean Grey came back and then Madeline Pryor tried to kill both of them, ended up dying, and now she's a psychic ghost for Nate Grey. You know, like, I didn't get that. One of my favorite things to do when people are like just starting to get in the X-Men is to like start talking about Jean Grey and get to the part where she dies, but she doesn't really die, but she also doesn't really come back. And then be like, hey, you wanna know where Jean comes back? Uh, Fantastic Four. Is where yeah. she comes back. <laughs> yeah, and they find her at the bottom of the Jamaican Bay. Yeah, uh, but but that was the feeling that I had, and I and I feel like a lot of people. My my, my feelings about like continuity and and the sort of barrier for entry, like not not in a gatekeeper way, but like uh, people for years talked about how much like oh casual fans hate continuity. Like you're never going to get people into the into the stores with all these continuity heavy comics. Uh, and then they made 23 movies that you have to watch in order. And everyone loved them. And I was I like, oh no, we were right all along. Continuity is I couldn't agree with you more. I love continuity, yeah. especially in comics. I want to be rewarded for following along on the story. I think that's why Morrison's new X-Men, like many in our generation, that's what brought me right back to comics. And yeah. there was so, it paid off in the end because they that's... respect. And then it, it, it was respected I know they undid a lot of things, but I really do feel a lot of the modern X-Men up until like Ickman was a reaction to Morrison. That is the, that's the not so secret secret of X-Men 92 is that it's uh, me and Chad doing Morrison. Well, like, it's uh, Mo doing Morrison plots with, uh, with 90s aesthetics. Uh, White Phoenix, Cassandra Nova. Yes. Yeah, that's Absolutely. why Cassandra Nova's in the first one. Uh, and then like, we did the uh, the Jubilee Gets Bit by Dracula story. Oh, yeah, you did. Because uh, the idea was, uh, what if... Okay, so the X-Men cartoon is on. And they get to the point 
where they've done all the big stories, right? They've done Dark Phoenix. They've done uh, like Hellfire Club stuff. They've done like Phalanx the, Covenant kind of. Yeah. Well, it's during the Phalanx Covenant, they start to get ahead. And so like, they, like Phalanx Covenant is being adapted for the show while it's coming out in comics. Yeah. And yeah. then they like call up Marvel and they're like, what else you guys got? And so they have to start telling them stuff that they're planning for like the next year, which you get the, you know, the kind of sort of age of apocalypse stuff that happens on the cartoon. Yeah. So, you know, so, it's so interesting. I, I interviewed the Lee Walds and I interviewed Scott Lobdell as well. And they're conflicting stories on how age of apocalypse came to be because uh, Scott and the, the, he was talking about how he came up with it on his own. And then Eric and Julia Leewald talked about how that was the discussion that was happening at Marvel and how they kind of informed all of that. Yeah. So what we like, what we did was like, okay, well, what if the nineties, what if the people in the nineties, instead of like calling Marvel called like Marvel in 2015 and like, Hey, what happened? We have, we have 10 minutes. Tell us everything that happened from 2000 to 2015. <laughs> and so that's what we did. Like, what would Cassandra Nova be like if it was still the 90s? Which, oh, she would be the Shadow King, obviously. <laughs> you know, what, what would the uh, Curse of the Mutants be like if it yeah. happened in the 90s? Oh, well, it would be like Marvel, like, like Gene Colan Dracula uh, and Jubilee would get turned into a Lost Boys vampire, yeah. obviously. Like, so it was this, this series of things that were like, we really wanted to do. There were these weird high concepts of it's it's we couldn't we couldn't do more of 90s stuff because you've already seen that and we would be competing with your memories of comics you read when you were a kid and we're <laughs> never going to be as good as comics you read when you were a kid that is like no one is ever going to write a batman comic that's as good as batman 425 which is the yeah. one batman fights a bunch of dudes in the junkyard because i read that comic when i was six Literally every Batman comic since then has been as good or better than that comic, <laughs> but not for me. Like nothing's going to beat that one. It's, it's in my top 10 forever. Right. So we couldn't do, we couldn't retell any 90s stuff. We, we realized very quickly. We didn't want to retell 90s stories. We didn't want to like try and, and, and do that because that's competing with people's memories. And if we had any chance of doing anything people would like, we had to do something else. So the idea of doing what were at that point, 15 year old stories, which are still comics people would have heard when they were kids. But like the idea of like, okay, well those were done in a completely different, like a, like a different world almost. But like you, you know, you can, for the X-Men specifically, like you can really put a pin in wow. Morrison launching new X-Men, Morrison and Quitely, uh, because like, immediately before that it had been claremont again you know yeah. so 2001 is the end of the 90s for the x-men and everything yeah. since then like you said has been a reaction to uh building off of like it's been that that for better or for worse whether people like it or not whether people think that was a successful run or not that reinvented the x-men i can't um, believe that morrison now is looked back and it's sort of contentious with newer fans. Like some of the newer fans actually don't like Morrison. And for me and, you know, a lot of the other like comic book readers I know that are about my age, they are like, wow, what Morrison did, that was revolutionary. And I, I can look back now and like 
I think I was harsher on things like the 12 and X-Men revolution. I've gone back and I've read them and, you know, there's stuff that's bad, but there's also a lot of good there. And I was surprised at how much I liked the 12, but Morrison just ushered in this new era for me. And I remember I got into Morrison very late. I got into Morrison during murder at the mansion with that. Mm. that Great story, though. Yeah. That Gene and Emma, Phil Jimenez cover. I mean, as a gay boy, I was like, yeah. And like, I was at like a BNN or it wasn't even a BNN, dude. It was a Borders. And like, they had like the stacks there. And it was just so great. And it was just so smart and so thoughtful. And it was the White Queen versus Phoenix. You know what I mean? And like, I just, I loved what they did in that series. Yeah. We, it's funny because like, I feel the exact same way. And I feel, I feel like there are certain generational markers of, of being into comics. Like, I will never like Gru because mm-hmm. that is a comic that dudes like me who are like four to five years older than me are really into. But it ne- <laughs> it's never going to click with me because I'm just a little too young for it. And I feel like a lot of people who are uh, like reading now, whereas like, the current generation of creators grew up on Morrison. Like if you look at a, a Steve Orlando or a, uh, a James Tynan, like they are clearly like Morrison JLA, Morrison Batman. Like, like that's the, oh Hickman even. Like I remember oh, yeah. having a conversation with Hickman where he was like, he, he asked me, we were driving back from the Charlotte airport after San Diego. He was like, who do you think's the best? Alan Moore or Grant Morrison? And I was like, I was like, I don't know. I, I like Morrison's my guy. And he's like, yeah, Grant Morrison's the heavyweight champion of the world for me. <laughs> and the thing he said was like, because I look at those ideas and I laugh because they're so good. Yeah. And I feel like that's what sticks with like you, me, him, like, like yeah. the, the people our age. So we got the question about, um, about uh, one of the uh, Morrison stories. And Matt and I both, Matt Wilson, my co-host on Warwick and Ajax, we have a recurring bit where we uh, rank comics. We've been doing it for seven or eight years now. And so we have a list of 1,200 comics at this point, ranked from best to worst. What? Uh, And we do like a a two-hour special every month uh, where people send in comics and we're like, this one goes here, this one goes here. And so the list has been built. And someone sent us in a, one of the Morrison stories, one of the, the, is it Planet X where yeah. uh, Magneto attacks? Yeah, and, where, where Zornito is revealed and he kills Gene. Right. And we were like, oh, that story's great. Like, oh, the, the Zorn reveal, like M- Magneto, like being a bad guy because he's you know whacked out of his mind on kick. Uh, like, <laughs> yeah, that story rules. Like, but it was sent in on a, li- like on a list where people were like, here are some disappointing stories or whatever. And we were like, why is that story disappointing? Part of the bit of that show is we do it all from memory. Like, yeah. like 99% of the time we're just going off memory because that's what mm-hmm. is filling our brains. And then someone was like, hey, yeah, that's the one where uh, Magneto, who is the most famous Holocaust survivor in comics, builds concentration camps. And we were yeah. like, oh, right, yeah. And, that, <laughs> like, and obviously Morrison knew what they were doing. Like, yeah. absolutely. But I don't think in retrospect, it, much much like Kitty Pride saying racial slurs in God Loves oh, Man Kills, oh. it's a it's a great moment when it happens, and and Claremont and Brent Anderson know that they're doing it for to shock value to make their point, and it's a good point to make. 
Morrison's doing this thing to make a point and and make Magneto a villain, which he hadn't really been in years, no. uh, if not decades. But in retrospect, was it a good idea? In retrospect, does it land? And I feel like the people who weren't reading that month to month and who weren't like into yeah. that run, they can look at that and, and they see those big flaws in the same way that I look at like, I don't know, Excalibur. I hate Excalibur. Oh, I know. Uh, the, the original Excalibur run. Yeah. I hate it. It's the worst. Uh, but in the same way that we can all look back at stuff like God Loves, Man Kills, and we can be like, yeah, okay, it's good, but did this need to be here? Yeah, no, I, I agree. And we, it's so funny because I read God Loves, Man Kills. It's exactly what you just said. I read that as a teen growing up, and I was like, this is revolutionary. And it really, and I want to do give credit for it because it did give me a baseline for understanding otherness and the persecution of minorities at a time in my life where those narratives weren't easily accessible to me or were even in the mainstream media. But I read it recently with a guest and, you know, you can spot some of the problems in there and you can appreciate it as something that was emblematic of a certain time and narrative, but it doesn't quite land for like modern readers. And I think even with Planet X, I, I never thought about Magneto creating concentration camps. That's a awesome fucking awesome point that's why i'm so happy to have you on the podcast today yeah, uh, and, and but, it was something that that i knew happened that i could tell you oh yeah like that's like that's the like that is on purpose right that's yeah. the, the whole point but if you take a step back and you go okay well hang on what are magneto's defining traits as a character because <laughs> i can hold that story and be like oh that's a you know that's a really cool magneto as a villain moment mm -hmm. and i can also hold that issue of Captain America where he puts the Red Skull in a hole and just leaves him there to die. Oh, like man. that's also a really great moment. And I can hold both of those in my head at the same time, but a lot of people go, Hey, you realize those don't match. <laughs> yeah. No. And, yeah. and like, it honestly wasn't until that was pointed out to us and we had to go back. We almost never go back and talk about stuff we've already <laughs> ranked on the show. We had to be like, Hey everybody, guess what we forgot about. Well, um, I love what you said, because when you read these comics, especially like at an impressionable age like Morrison, because again, I was an English major when I started reading Morrison. And that was like such a great like source of information and character development and all that stuff. And, and I'm a huge I'm a crazy Gene Stan. So you're going to give me Gene becoming the God Queen of the X-Men universe and turning into White Phoenix and like completely redoing the timeline. I'm in love. You go back and read them now, you're like, well, how did these stories kind of line up? They're better in your head. And I've thought that so much. I will say, though, watching, not to go back to Sailor Moon just yet, but watching Sailor Moon, I did the whole 200 episodes, specials, and movies with you guys. I obviously, like, I, I finished before you guys are finishing now. But I, I thought Sailor Moon held up for me. And I think it's because what Jordan said in the recent episode with you guys, where you have to watch Sailor Moon with your emotions. And, and that's why Sailor Moon really resonates. And you guys were talking specifically about that scene with Haruka, like bitch slapping Usagi. And even though it doesn't make any sense, you're looking at the episode, you're looking at the writing, you're looking at how it's cut. But what resonates with so many people is that Usagi still believes in her friend. And I think it was you or Jordan who was like, they have consistently showed that Haruka is not Usagi's friend. Yeah. But you're leading with your emotions and, you, and you're, you're really feeling Usagi. And, and, and yeah, I mean, you look back on some of these like comics and 
yo, like some of them don't age well, but it's because you have that nostalgic tinge to them. Yeah, and and also it's you know the the inevitability of changing uh, audiences and and changing times. Like like nothing nothing from twenty five years ago is is perfect. You know, no, like, it's not. It, it's not. It, it's because not like people come to different understandings of not only society but like different understandings of media. Yeah, like and and, and and storytelling tools. Like I am someone who loves like reading comics from the like even going back to like the golden age i love golden age comics i love silver age superman comics i love 70s like bronze okay. age marvel and, and dc comics i love them but like you can go back and and it's always funny when you can see the good intentions and be like oh you you your heart was in the right place roy thomas you really <laughs> was uh, it was yeah, like, but 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 yeah, that's I, I forget what sort of is down this path. But I think two things. Uh, one, God loves man kills. I think is a really interesting story to talk about with that, with the regards to how ideas and aesthetics and and audiences change over the years. Because God loves man kills to me is like the best X Men as persecuted minority story. Yeah, because I think it like like. It's it's that uh, like Claremont at his most soap operatic, you know. You, you dare call that thing human? <laughs> like, beautiful. Uh, but it's also true that you can only a, a lot of people uh, who, and again, I don't mean this as as rude or gatekeepy, but there's a lot of people who haven't read as many X Men comics as you and I have. <laughs> Oh, and, and like they're like a lot of people have a more surface understanding they're like oh right yeah x-men mutants mutants are a persecuted minority but they also shoot uh concussive force blasts out of their faces and <laughs> and do murders like I, I always call the sentinels giant purple robots made of racism which is true <laughs> yeah but they're also giant robots and there's only there's a point where you push that metaphor until it breaks and if you go into that and the only thing that you want to do is tell the God loves man kill story, you're going to, you're not going to use the X-Men to their full potential. It, yeah. it has to be uh, an ingredient and it's, it's, and it also for longtime X readers and, and this was the case for me for sure. It's also a real big bummer. If that's like, if, if you're just doing God loves man kills, sometimes you have to do that story where storm fights Dracula. Sometimes you have to do that story where Doctor Doom shows up. Sometimes, sometimes you have to have Cyclops People fight those leprechauns. Oh my god! Yes, yeah. I love it. I mean, I love everything you're saying because I think it it's still very true. I mean, you you can do the heavy stuff, you can lead in that, but sometimes comics are supposed to be fun. And and something interesting you said too that I want to circle back on is one of the things I've discovered doing this podcast. And I don't know if you discovered this with sailor business or any of your other podcasts a lot of people who listen aren't actually the diehard uh x stands there are people who are just getting into x-men comic books or have come in and out throughout the years and one of the best things about it is that people are asking for recommendations they want to like come together and they want some sort of direction with the x books and you form like this little micro community 
and you can talk nerd and you can explain it. And I always say this podcast for me has felt like I'm at a comic book counter in 1994. Yeah. Yeah. It's people ask me for recommendations. This actually happened very recently uh, with uh, someone asking me for uh, like, they mentioned uh, Long Halloween. And I was like, yeah. eh, a lot of people like it, but I don't. And then they mentioned like another popular Batman story. And I was like, eh, a lot of people like it, but I don't. Like, <laughs> okay, well, what do you, what do you like? If you've read all of these, if you, you know, I haven't read all the Batman comics because there are 10,000 of them and I have only been alive for so long, but I've read, I would say over half. I have read over half of all Batman comics. Yeah. So like, I, I, I have a, like, I feel like I've got a pretty good background. And I'm like, okay, if you want me to recommend you like a handful of good Batman stories or X-Men stories or Spider-Man stories, they're probably not going to be the ones that you're going to see on like people's lists of like the 10 best Batman stories, 10 best Spider-Man stories, or even the ones that like Marvel and DC comics will be like, these are the 10 best uh, Spider-Man stories. These are the 10 best X-Men stories. Mine are going to be very different because like I, the more of a background you have and the larger your sample size gets, the less, the more like uh, unfriendly to new readers you yeah. can be with what you like. Like there are comics that I like because I have read other comics. It's, it's like, it's, it's like the Watchmen thing, right? Like Watchmen's good. I know, I, I know you look shocked that I just said that, <laughs> that Watchmen is good. I, but, I really love Watchmen. Yeah, like, it's good. But I think the, and you can pick that up as a new comics reader and read it and get a perfectly good story out of it. Yeah. But I think you, unless you're a person who has a grounding in the language of comics and specifically of superhero comics and the format, you're not getting as much out of it as is there. And that doesn't mean you shouldn't read it. And that doesn't mean like, Again, I think everybody should read every comic. I think everybody should read everything they want. But if you did not know that Watchmen number five is laid out symmetrically over it, the panel of Ozymandias uh, hitting the guy with an, uh, an ashtray, that all the pages mirror each other because that's mm-hmm. the issue about Rorschach. But the centerpiece of that comic is a false center because it's 12 issues, not 10. So like the end of that issue is actually the center of Watchmen uh, or, or the end of uh, number six is actually the center of Watchmen. The false middle of that story, the false center that everything is reflected around is Ozymandias, who did the crime. Like, if you don't know that, if you don't, like, know the, the language of looking at panels on a page that, that you get just from doing it. And, and I'm not, like, I am not smart. <laughs> I am smart. <laughs> I am smart. But, like, I, I, not, like, I, did not, I did not go to college for analyzing comics. You know, like, anybody <laughs> can get to this point. But... Uh, if you don't know that, you're not going to see it. And when you see it, you're going to be like, oh, this is great, right? Like that, you're going to yeah. get something out of it that you couldn't get because you literally aren't trained to see it. Well, yeah, and it's a way to- This probably makes me sound like a real pretentious asshole. No, I'm sorry. You don't sound like a real pretentious asshole at all. First of all, I worked at Wizard Magazine, trust me. Like I, I used to- hyper analyzed comics for a living. I, I look at you right now and I'm just like in love. You know what I mean? And I didn't know that about Watchmen, but I appreciate how the format and 
and how that that is used as a lens to tell a story in a very creative, different way that you don't typically get from other forms of reading. And it's just another layer to a story that like once you discover it's there, it makes it more savory and makes exactly. to quote Zeb Wells makes what you just mined all the more precious. It, that's exactly what it is. Cause you know what you're looking for. And I yeah. feel like much in the same way that as a kid, I was like, oh, I'm never gonna understand this. I found that appealing. Yeah. Like that was, that hooked What's me. Like, yeah. Because I was like, go, uh, you know, this was the early nineties when the X-Men were as popular as they have ever or will ever be, <laughs> to be honest. Like they were everywhere, but like I was still getting comics. I was living in a small town in South Carolina. I was getting comics at the grocery store. Like I, if mm -hmm. I could go to the comic book store, 90% of that comic book store was used romance novels, you know? <laughs> uh, so I read any of those romance novels. I've read I've read romance novels since actually uh, <laughs> I, I, I'm actually kind of on a romance novel kick right now I, I really love them really uh, yeah uh, you should read uh, you should definitely read the uh, Brown Sisters books they're they're great uh, but that was appealing to me like the like you know you talk about being the like the archaeologist like trying to put stuff together from trading cards and the yeah. issues that you had and the paperbacks you could get Dude, like I, talk I remember about that getting all the time. I, I would get like X-Men trading cards and I'd be like, okay, who's this guy? Forge. What's, yeah. what's he do? What's his deal? What do these numbers on the back actually mean? And then I remember I was like, oh, Wolverine trading cards. I'll get these. They'll just tell me about Wolverine. No, they told me about Albert and LCD and Cyber <laughs> and like all of these characters that I, I was like, you're telling me there's more characters that like, I'm never going to know about. How, how can you possibly like figure out this entire universe? And again, going back to like the Gene and the Fleer Ultras, like that was my gateway into X-Men, that rogue card where it said her name was unrevealed and she could steal other people's memories and powers. I was like blown away. I was like, who the fuck is this? And then I started collecting the cards and then I have a Jean Grey, I have an Inferno card, then I have Dark Phoenix and it says deceased. And I'm like, I don't understand this. Like, how does this story <laughs> like fit in into like any larger picture and then rationalizing like cards like the Morlocks to what I was seeing on the Leewalds. And by the way, one of the things I loved about X-Men 92, which I don't think we've discussed just yet, is that when that was being launched as part of Hickman's Secret Wars back in like 2015, that was a really hyped title because you guys were doing the X-Men 92 animated series. I mean, that's what people- Except we saw weren't, and, that, yeah. and that, made people, that made everybody mad at us because we couldn't. They told us, okay, at the time, 2015, this is before the Disney Fox merger. Yeah. Marvel did not have the rights to the X-Men cartoon. We literally could not legally do a sequel to the, <laughs> the television series X-Men that came out in 1992. <laughs> And they told us that they were like, look, you can't use anything that was on the show. And I was like, that's actually not a big problem because the only stuff that the show really had was there was like one weird mutant with like a beard and Jean had a ponytail. And other than <laughs> that, like if, as long as Jean doesn't put her hair in a ponytail, good. <laughs> you're good, you're good. But then like it start like every, every review, every article about it was like, begin with like cue the theme song. And it's like, <laughs> yes, the theme song is great. That's not, 
it, it, but we also like couldn't we also couldn't be like well don't buy this if that's what you want <laughs> and then the frustrating thing though was when those paperbacks came out like huge letters like if you flip them over to the back cover copy it's like the x-men are back in their most animated adventures and it's like oh. like you you get you told us we couldn't use that word even yeah uh, but so wait like, I have that a was the, question yeah how did the how did that comic come to be? Did you pitch Marvel for that? Did you have a relationship with Hickman, and he wanted to bring you on board for it, or were uh, you assigned it? It was Jordan, actually. Um, I had been working at Comics Alliance, and, and like you, uh, my job, like, uh, like. I had been a full-time freelance comics critic, which is a terrible job to have <laughs> uh, for five years at that point. And then I had been like blogging for five years before that kind of getting there. And so if you ever want to completely change your relationship with media, write about it every day. You will <laughs> learn to love it and hate it so much more. Uh, but one of the things I, I was working for Comics Alliance and one of the things that I had done was I did a full episode guide of the X-Men animated series. And a lot of what I talked about was like, you know, here's the comics these were based on, and like, here's how it compares to these comics. Because uh, that was, you know, I was 10 when that show came on. That's what got me. Yeah. Uh, and then obviously I grew up reading and liking the X-Men quite a bit. Uh, at the same time, uh, Chad Bowers and I had uh, just gotten our first graphic novel published. We'd been uh, pitching stuff for a couple of years uh, and we uh, got a, uh, book uh, accepted by Oni. It was called Downset Fight, drawn by Scott Kowalczyk. Yeah. Uh, and I, I always thought, like, I remember uh, Jordan and I had actually interacted with each other a little bit um, because, literally, because in 2010 or somewhere around there, like 2008 maybe, like back before Twitter was bad, uh, like he would, like on his way to work, like he would ride the subway and he would like watch Sailor Moon on his iPad, iPod. And then, like, tweet about, like, oh, today's episode of Sailor Moon was this. And I was like, oh, hey, man, I love Sailor Moon. <laughs> like, oh, you're, you're the Marvel? You're an editor at Marvel? And also you like Sailor Moon? Like, cool. So I, like, started following him on Twitter. He started following me. Like, we met for, like, an hour at uh, the first time I went to New York Comic Con, which was in 2010. And, uh, wow. like, we ended up at the same bar. And uh, I had been drinking. So I was like, y'all should make the first 50 issues of Fantastic Four free. <laughs> like that's what that's what i i, I love that was the beginning of your bromance there yeah uh he was like why and i was like because y'all made your money on it <laughs> which i think is accurate nintendo should put super mario brothers as a bonus on every platform they put out and marvel should make the first 50 issues of fantastic four free because if you want to understand marvel comics you can read those first 50 issues of fantastic four yes that's that's yes. it they can sell them issues of spider-man <laughs> the, the first 200 issues of Spider-Man, they keep selling. That's good. That, they made me money on that. But, but the amount of money Marvel Comics has made off what those first 50 issues of Fantastic Four did cannot be counted. Like, stop being greedy. You're set for life, Marvel. Yeah. Give them the fans. Here, here's what you do. You don't lose anything by giving those away for free because everybody who's going to buy them has them. Yeah. But you'll get a lot of people who want to read the next 50 issues and who want to read the other Jack Kirby stuff and who want to read the other Stan Lee stuff and who want to read other yeah. the Galactus stories and all the other Black Panther stories. Well, Black Panther shows up in 55, but anyway. <laughs> the Doctor Doom stories. Put the manuals in there too. But that's, that was it. I, I, was I was drunk and going, make them issues fantastic. <laughs> and what uh, was his reaction? 
why? <laughs> just like, why? Like, why? Yeah, no, but okay. like his face, what, was he, was he like cool about it or was like, Oh no, like we were, we were having fun. We were all okay, having I love fun, it. Okay. Uh, I think, but that was, that was the conversation that we had had. Uh, and you know, we, we stayed, uh, it, you know, in contact with each other, uh, mm-hmm. through, through the years after that, you know, uh, and, uh, I remember at 2014 at Emerald city, we gave, uh, like Tom Brevoort came by the table. That was our, we had downset fight had just launched. And so mm-hmm. that was kind of our first con. So me and Chad and Scott, who was in Canada at the time, like we all flew out to Seattle. We set up the table. Uh, it was good. Like we, we ended up selling all the copies that we had and we went to the yes. owner booth and bought more and then yes. sold those. So, uh, people seem to really like it. I still think that's a really fun book. It's, it's, if you like the X-Men stuff, you should read it. It's got a guy fighting mascots. We'll throw uh, up the link on our Instagram. Please, uh, please. And then uh, so Tom Brevoort comes to your table with his, and what, this is 2014, so he has his form spring and his hat. Right. <laughs> so Tom Brevoort form spring comes by the, from the table. Chad gave him a copy of the skin, like, hey, this is our first uh, graphic novel. We think it's pretty good. You know, take it, read it, or you know, give it a read if you like it. Give us a call, and I always thought like that was uh, like, I, and I still think that was like a contributing factor uh, because then like somebody like we know he read it because somebody asked him on that forums ring, uh, like somebody was like, hey, have you read any good non-Marvel comics lately? He was like, oh yeah, I got this one at uh, Seattle. It's about a football player who fights mascots. Like, and so we're like, oh, he read it. He liked it. That's good. But uh, Jordan was actually the one who who hired me. We uh, met in San Diego mm-hmm. that year, San Diego in 2014. And he was like, That's hey, a good San Diego. Uh, I want to talk to you about something, but I can't tell you what it is. <laughs> and so I was like, okay. And so we, we like literally like sat down in my hotel room and this is the second time we've ever met in person, you know? And he's like, okay, so we're doing an event next summer that's, that, a bunch of other versions of the Marvel universe are going to be involved with. Like, like that's how he described Secret Wars to me. He's like, okay. And I'm like, all right. He's like, and one of the ones that we want to have is uh, an X-Men, like 90s X-Men uh, world. And I was like, oh, cool. And he's like, the, the catch is that it can't be the animated series. And I was like, oh, okay. I'm sure people will understand that. Oh, I shook, I shook my head, listeners. Uh, but uh, like, he asked me and Chad if we wanted to write it. So like, as I don't think there was anybody like, it was not like uh, we weren't pitching against anyone else. I don't think. Like, okay. It was just like, hey, we want to do a '90s X Men book. We know you guys like '90s stuff. Uh, it, it, at the very least, Tom Brevoort knows that we can put, <laughs> put together words on a page. Yeah. Like Josh Crock, who was our editor on that book. Uh, can put words on the page for us. So uh, you got invited to do this comic. Did you, did Hickman reach out? And and by the way, I, I wanted to also circle back on something you said about Hickman giving you a ride because everyone I have spoken to, I always ask, do you know Hickman? What are your feels on Hickman? Everyone from a comic book seller, from Toy Wiz, the comic book seller, all the way through Jordan, have said that Hickman is the nicest guy ever and that he 
takes the time to explain and talk and give people context and time. Uh, absolutely accurate. Honestly, like, again, I was a professional comics critic for 10 years. One of my favorite interviews, like one of my favorite people to interview because he's fascinating. I don't think people who read his comics know how funny he is. I, no. think, I think that's coming through a little bit more in the X-Men stuff because occasionally is. he'll be hilarious. Oh my God, that scene with Gene and Emma where Gene is like, oh, you're the one who likes to borrow things. And Emma's like, ha, drinks later. And Gene's like, yeah, you're buying it. Emma's like, I always do, darling. Like, he is so great at writing witty characters. And I don't mean making a character sound witty, like characters who are organically supposed to be witty. Hickman nails that. Yeah, yeah. Like, Secret Wars is legit, like, my favorite Marvel event of all time. Like, and not and not because it made me money. Just a small amount of money that it made me. The, the less than you think amount of money that it made me. Uh, no, like, like, he's su- like as a person, no complaints. Super nice, uh, like, like fascinating to talk to. Uh, one of the most admirable people in terms of like confidence that yeah. I've ever talked to. Cause like there is no one, there is no one who is as sure of himself and also exactly as good as he thinks he is. Cause he is exactly as good. He knows exactly how good he is, which is very yeah. good. Yeah. Uh, he, he once told me, like we were talking about Downset Fight and uh, this is after Downset Fight came out before we got in the job at Marvel. And we were like, yeah, like we really want to do like, like a Marvel book, a DC book, something. And he was like, he looked at us and he was like, you need to make more money doing an image book if you sell 40,000 copies a month. And I was like, yeah, John. Yeah, Hitman. But, but I can't sell 40,000 copies a month, buddy. Like, I know you can. Uh, but, but like, like, he has that attitude. He's like, he's like, oh, like, like, everybody in comics is a is a, a weirdo with no understanding of the world, <laughs> but except for like Hickman and Bendis are the two guys who know what business is. Well, the like, the thing that I the impression I've gotten with Hickman is that not only is he a good storyteller writer, and like I I believe I was talking with Cena Grace, and Cena Grace said that he knows how to land a plane. So those are his words, but that he also has a good understanding of the comic book industry. So Absolutely. like that advice you just said he gave you about like, well, you can make more money at image if you sold 40, you know, if you ship 40 K. I don't know how you guys call the numbers. I mean, I read the, the sales figures, but I don't know if it's shipping or that point of sales, but that's <laughs> like, that's like, I, I definitely see that advice coming from Hickman because that lines up with everything. I have heard yeah. about like, him. It's it, like, it might, again, it's like, like, I mean it in the nicest way possible, like very shrewd uh, in, in a way that like, you have to be if you're gonna like make a living at comics, which yeah. is very hard to do. You, a lot of people I think would be surprised to find out how many people in comics, like it's not their, their primary source of income and definitely not their only source of income. Like, Dude, it's the same thing. I, I used to work at HarperCollins as a book editor you would be surprised at how little some advances are. And even these big advances, you're like, yeah, but then when you think of your agent and taxes, that's not a lot of money. And so they do other things. And there was always this false note, especially with younger writers. It's like, oh, my book deal. What do you mean? I I can't live off of this, you know, book contract. I don't feel bad telling the story because uh, Rob Venditti told it on uh, a recent episode of War Rocket Ajax, but we were talking to him about how 
like he was working at like the like the fanographics like warehouse uh, and also the surrogates came out which was his big first graphic novel again you read that and you're like oh this is this guy's first graphic novel this guy's incredible and then of course he goes on and does you know has written comics for the next 15 years and has this huge back catalog of like green lantern and, and hawkman and stuff and uh the surrogates got optioned for a movie and he went out to the premiere and so he's out at the premiere of this movie that stars bruce willis and so he's like you know there's Bruce Willis on the red carpet. There's this movie that they made of his thing. And then that's on Friday. And on Monday, he's back at the warehouse. <laughs> packing up boxes. Yeah. yeah. It's like, yep. Yep. But like, it, but Hickman But that's a, a hustler too, though. That's what I, I love oh, yeah. that hustle. You I see it be. all the time, like with freelancers, like they, and I have this attitude as well as I'm sure you do too. I say yes to every job that's going to bring me an opportunity or money. And it's like one day you're doing something like you're at a premiere, the next you're just like, you know, sloughing around luggage, you know, and your amps somewhere. It's, it's, I like that. I like that story a lot. Yeah. Because that's you, someone who knows the value of work and, and money. I, I feel like there's, it is 100% true that there's nobody in comics except Mark Miller who is not there because they love comics, right? Yeah. Like, like nobody's there if they don't love comics except Martin Miller. Uh, that's that's my that's my hot take. Uh, and he and even he liked them at one point before he decided he liked giant stacks of money instead. Uh, I don't really I don't follow Mark Miller. I didn't know he was. Kind of a you're not not missing out on. Too much. Uh, but like nobody is in comics. You're not in comics unless you love comics. Unless you yeah. unless you have decided this is what I want to do. This is what I love. This is my favorite thing, whether it's reading them, whether it's making them like you, cause the, cause it is, you're, you're not gonna, you're not like, like the odds against you becoming Mike Mignola are astronomical. And even that takes years and years and years of work. Yeah. You, know? you don't just uh, manifest like that, you know, yeah. like you have to work towards it. The, the, the best case scenario is that uh, is that you get invited to be a cameo in the movie where everyone is making more money than you? Uh, <laughs> but no, but everybody loves comics. Um, but like the it, it, like, and I feel like that's also true for Hickman. Like I've I've watched him like uh, I've literally watched him lay out pages at cons. Uh, he invited Chad and I to. Uh, he was doing a con and he didn't want to do like, like not have anybody he knew around. So he told him to invite us. <laughs> so we got yes. invited. Oh my and, God, you were part of Hickman's posse. Yeah. I remember like sitting there like kind of catty corner to him and he has like a moleskin and he's laying out his Avengers run. Like what would like we, which hadn't even been announced. Just right he's just, there. Yeah. He's just there like. In the middle of a con. Yeah. With a moleskin figuring out how the pages work and you don't do that unless you're obsessed. And you don't yeah. do this conversation unless you're obsessed. So <laughs> he absolutely loves, loves comics, but I also think he's like, in terms of people that I've talked to about business and, and like I, when I wanted advice on like business and comics, he's the guy I went to. And that's when we had the, uh, that's when we had the sell 40,000 copies a month. <laughs> it's like, oh, is that all? Is that all I have to do? Thanks. Right there. No, it's going to be easy. Don't worry. Thank, hey, thanks for that. Wait, I want to, so, so you get on board with Secret Wars and you're doing X-Men 92, you're not allowed to say it's part of the animated series, even though later down the line, the marketing copy will say it's animated, you know, whatever. Right. But it was also 
an infinite comic volume one i i and they're they're different so i don't know if it's volume one and volume two but the, the, the first iteration is an infinite comics uh branded comic which listeners if you don't know at the time that was their exclusive you can only read this in digital format how yeah. did it how how was it because i think the only time i can really think that they did that was during avx when they were doing some of like the interim issues like they did it on infinite comics and it was supposed to be like the launch of like this new reader experience but I don't even think it's still around. I know they did like a year in the Marvels, which I loved that so much. But what were your thoughts when you found out you were going to be doing this, but it was only going to be exclusively digital? And did you know you would eventually come back for like print? We we knew they were going to put that story out in print as well. It was okay. going to run first as the Infinite Comic, and then they were going to do like a like a print comic version. But there were going to be differences, uh, and. Uh, the way it was pitched to us was, and honestly, I feel like that's why, like, because it was an infant comic, they expected like, oh, this is going to be like an online thing, which means it's good. Like, we can take a, a bit of a risk in terms of like the creators. Like, it, it doesn't have to be like, you know, Brian Dennis or whatever. Uh, so, you know, this is a good way for two new guys who have done digital comics before, because we'd also done web comics. We'd also done self-published digital stuff. Uh, we, we were, you know, familiar with comicsology and, and how it worked. Uh, and the idea was uh, we would do eight chapters digitally. Each print issue would be a slightly oversized uh, two chapters. So okay. when we were writing it, it was both uh, like, uh, like an interesting challenge, but also like we had to think about formatting it in a very different way because the deal with the infinite comics was uh when you would go through them uh they would uh they were built for the comicsology guided view which means that like panels could appear in a certain order so things on the page could change uh not like like a like a motion comic or like a cartoon uh which motion comics Thumbs down on those. Oh, big those thumbs bad. down. Oh, I remember buying like the DVDs for like Astonishing X-Men. No bueno. It's terrible. But like, it, it, in this was like an actual like, oh, this is meant to be this way. This is meant to like an overlay appears on the page. You know, lightning crashes in the background. Like you can <laughs> do effects that make sense and like have word balloons pop up in a certain way. Uh, and honestly, most of that Part of it, like a thing that made it incredibly easy, was uh, Scott Koblish, who uh, was the artist on that book. Dude, the um, art for that, like, was beautiful. It. Demolished like, it. Like, so, literally so slayed it. Yeah, like he, we did it. We wrote it Marvel style, essentially. Like Chad and I did a plot breakdowns, um, like key scenes. We would do more detail on uh, and give like you know rough dialogue, uh, and then. Koblish did like all the pacing and all like the, the panel breaks. That's all him. Like, cause he had done one of those before he had done a Deadpool one before that Jordan had worked on. Uh, and that's, that's why he got picked to do it. Uh, like Jordan got him to do it as well. Cause he was familiar with that format. And we just kind of like in that phase of it, like our job was to get out of his way, you know? <laughs> and then we would go back in and, and do like, you know, like finish dialogue, you know, the, the classic Marvel method of plot, 
uh, plot pages dialogue. Is that I wait? Can you explain what the Marvel method is, not only to our listeners but to me as well? Because I'm not too familiar with what that is. Uh, it's how Stan Lee wrote 30 comics a month. <laughs> uh, <laughs> basically, the the Marvel method is the writer comes up with a plot, uh, either the the writer on their own or in conversation with the artist. Claremont and Byrne, for example. Mm-hmm. Uh, Claremont and Byrne would plot the book together. The artist, Byrne, Jack Kirby, Dave Cockrum, whomever, Steve Ditko, uh, then draws the book. Uh, they All the pacing, all the, the panel layouts, all of that is done by the artist. Then the writer comes back in and does the script. So based on the conversation that you'd had and, and the plot that you'd come up with and the page layout, then you put the actual words on the page. Uh, and, you know, Kirby and Dicko and Byrne would often like write suggested dialogue. Kirby did it all the time. Uh, Dicko, Kirby did it all the time and Stan went with it. Dicko did it all the time and Stan was like, maybe we shouldn't have Peter Parker quote Ayn Rand as much as you want him to, Steve. Uh, but no, like, like that's what makes uh, like why Ditko, Kirby, Busema, uh, Ayers, like why those guys were so important to early Marvel uh, was that, you know, Stan was able to kind of like unify the books with a, a distinct voice that people respond to and be the kind of face of the company. Because at the end of the day, drawing a book takes way more time than writing it. Like no matter yeah. how long it takes you to, t- to write a book, you can do it faster than an artist can draw it. Yeah. Um, like I, the fastest I've ever written a comic is I wrote 22 pages in a weekend. Wow. Uh, and even then I had been thinking about those pages for weeks before I actually like, sat down and, and scripted them. Uh, and I wound up you know, doing a lot of editing on those. Those, you cannot draw 11 pages in a single day. You would like, even if you could, you, you would die. <laughs> like, well, I, w- I was talking to Rod Rice and he was, literally and just like in the middle of a deadline and he was just talking about like he has i I forget i don't want to butcher what he said but it was something like three to four weeks to do one issue for like his art i'm like how do you do that and he's you're like i just don't sleep (laughs) yeah it's uh uh uh, michel fife when he was doing the first uh cobra series he set a goal to like have a comic out every month and he was doing everything. He was writing it, drawing it, and publishing it. And so, insane. Yeah, it was very, very much the same of like, you know, oh yeah, I'm just not going to sleep for a year. <laughs> uh, so like, you know, you can get the scripting done a lot faster. Uh, whether you're doing a full script, which is like generally, uh, Chad Bowers and I, like we've been, we, we wrote together for years, but we both approach scripts very differently. Um, he's he's very uh, top down. I'm very bottom up. Uh, in that, like I like I like dialogue. I don't necessarily start with dialogue, but I like to have dialogue on the page to inform the action. Whereas mm-hmm. Chad likes to think about layout and plot, and then dialogue is the last thing he does. I once saw him write, like we were working on something. I think uh, it was probably X Men, honestly. And I saw him write, like you know, page four five panels. Then he, you know, control enter. Page five, six panels. Page seven, three panels. And I was like, what are you doing? Like, ha- like how do you know that this is gonna be a six panel page? And he was like, well, you know, pacing wise, if you, if you look at the pacing, like this is gonna be like a dialogue heavy scene, like we're gonna have, you know, 
a more mm -hmm. action heavy scene later. Like that's about how many panels I think that's going to take. And I was like, how do you know that? Like, it was like sorcery to me because the yeah. way I write it is I start page one, panel one description dialogue and, and go from there. Like I write generally everything in order. That's so interesting how your two different methods had to like come together and like share a script. Yeah. And it, like, it, I think it, it honestly, I think made those comics uh, better than I, than I, than if I would have written them on my own, I well, won't speak for Chad, but uh, I, I, <laughs> because I like, I think what we came up with good, but I'm not going to say like I was the magic ingredient, but I know that like it made them different than how I would have written them because we were approaching them in a different way. And that meant there was occasionally not, not in a, again, not in a bad way, but like a conflict between like what he wanted to do on a page, what I thought should be on that page, dialogue that I wanted to do versus action he wanted to do or action that I wanted to do. And so we would have to talk it out and be like, what makes sense? Uh, Charlie Chu, who was our editor at uh, Oni when we did Downset Fight, when we sent in the script, which was 144 pages, he was like, that's the tightest script I've ever seen. Wow. And I was like, yeah, that's because we fought about every plot point. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> which, was an which was an exaggeration, but like, it was literally like, we had discussed with each other, like it, it's not just you yourself going back and looking over your work. You've got someone else who is also invested in it and also like has this huge amount of knowledge of comics and huge amount of knowledge of, of how they're put together. That person is looking at what you're doing as well. Like I would write a page. The, the way we ended up writing a lot of the ongoing series, ongoing, it was 10 issues before it got canceled, but you know, the second series <laughs> uh, was we would literally, we had a, a shared Google document and we would literally trade off. Like, oh, I love that. Uh, on pages. I would write, a page or three or four or five of a sequence and then Chad would come in and rewrite something on my pages then write the next little bit of pages then I would come in and rewrite some of his pages and we would like edit and clean up each other's work in a way that really I think made those scripts a lot easier to follow and uh, you know a, a lot tighter in script form than they would have been otherwise uh, but I remember um, on on both Downset Fight and on the uh, the Brood arc, the second arc of uh, of ninety two, um, uh, Chad originally like in, in his script uh, was, uh, had left like a couple fight scenes, pretty much for like the, the artist to determine like the the land of the fight scene. Like you know, hey, like like you know, you you are the artist. We do not want to be in your way. If you have cool ideas for a fight scene, go for it. And I remember doing and being like, hey. I really want to write that fight scene. I was like, okay, yeah, like go for it. Yeah. Because I like I genuinely enjoy sitting there and figuring out the flow of action scenes. Mm -hmm. And I I never want to give an artist camera directions or or like and I always tell people like, hey, if this doesn't make sense to you, do whatever you want. Like uh, I do a, a book called uh, Dracula the Unconquered with uh, Steve Downer and Josh Crock. And Steve has like completely changed page layouts that I've sent him. And like wow, added panels, taken out panels, combined things, and that's fine. Because go for it. Like, like that is you are the visual thinker in a way that yeah, I'm you're not. the lens in which the reader is going to experience this. You are, in your case, you're the story. You're the yeah. you know the words that they're going to internalize. Yeah, but but at the same time, I also do really like being like okay, uh, the fight scene in Downset Fight, for example, is like mm -hmm. he's in a kitchen, and I'm like, awesome. What's in a kitchen? 
an oven, a fire extinguisher, <laughs> a frying pan. There's like stuff like like yeah. he's gonna grab the frying pan and he's gonna like grab him, but he's gonna have his arms on the oven behind him and set him on fire. And that's like, I mean, it's 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 thinking your way through a Jackie Chan movie. Honestly. <laughs> like, uh, and, and when I say that, like we did that on '92 as well. Uh, a lot of those fight scenes, I, I we were not like super specific on, but I did know that. Uh, uh, we worked with Alte Fermancia, who's a fantastic artist. She's amazing. Yeah. She did such a great job on that book. And we always like to have the conversation with artists, like, like, what do you like to draw? What do you yeah. not like to draw? Because if you don't like drawing boats, then we're not. Then I don't want to put a, a scene yeah. on the waterfront. Cause... Well, and it's gonna, yeah, and it'll come out in their art that they don't like yeah. to draw boats. And and if you're like, oh, I really want to draw, I really want to draw boats, then it's like, cool, we'll have a pirate. Yeah. <laughs> Whatever it is, we'll have a pirate. Um, There's Nightcrawler on the ship, things. Yeah, exactly. Like, I, I like to draw sword fights. Cool. Nightcrawler's going to fight somebody with a sword. Awesome. <laughs> uh, and Alti told us, like, we asked that and we asked, like, hey, like, what are your artistic influences? Like, what did you, like, what do you look at for inspiration? And Alti had told us, uh, oh, my two biggest things, like my two biggest points of reference for comics when I was growing up and becoming an artist were Gen 13 and Dragon Ball Z. Gen 13. Oh, and I was man. like, awesome, because I love Gen 13. <laughs> uh, Gen 13, AKA hornier X-Men. Uh, and- It'd be true. And I'm like, oh, that you are perfect to draw this book. And if you go look at, like if you go look at the art knowing that's in there, like you can tell like, like Alti is doing like J. Scott Campbell. <laughs> in there and uh i i the the big fight scene between rogue and gladiator which is i think like oh. like again that's i that's 75 80 90 percent ulti you know doing yeah. the action there but i was like hey i want to do that thing where rogue's punching him really fast so it just looks like she <laughs> has a hundred fists coming at him like in dragon ball yeah like i was like i called it out like i want to do the dragon ball shit in this one one of the fight scenes that I love, and I'm curious about how it ended up there. I'm trying, I was pulling it up on my phone because I Instagrammed it. I think you'll know which one this is. Oh, yeah, this is the Sailor Moon one. Yeah. yeah, wait, hang on. Hold up, hold up, right there. Yeah, <laughs> That's a, yeah you got it. Because I remember you said that on Sailor Business that you snuck in some Easter eggs there. And I was like, oh no, I'm going to reread all of that. How does that, how does like an art note like that? end up in the X-Men 92 script. Uh, here's the great thing about writing comic scripts. And a thing that like, I have, I've done very little of like, you know, uh, like talking to, to writers clubs or book clubs about like the process of writing comics. Um, but you know, I'm always happy to do so. But one of the things I always say is like, hey, when you're writing a comic script, three people are gonna see that. Like two people are going to see that three. If you have an editor, like yeah. that, the script is a conversation between you and the artist. And that means you can put stuff in there. You don't have to write your panel descriptions. Do not and should not do, do not need to be and should not be florid. And your panel descriptions should not be beautiful writing yeah. because nobody's going to see them. Your panel description should be clear. Yeah. That's a really um, good note. And they need like, because the artist, it's like, hopefully the artist enjoys <laughs> what's happening in the script. But more than that, like the artist needs the tool to do their job. 
Yeah. And the best way to do that is to communicate what you want clearly. If there is a specific thing that you want in a comic, say, I want this specific thing. And the great thing about now, uh, you know, the great thing about Google Docs, honestly, mm-hmm. is you can put in there, hey, I want to reference this pant, like like the 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 one I always throw out is like the Wolverine coming out of the sewer, like you know, you've had yeah. your best shot now. It's the, the best panel <laughs> in Marvel Comics uh, history, the most important panel in Marvel <laughs> Comics history, because it, at that point everybody was like, oh, this Wolverine guy. Okay. I oh get yeah, it. right there. Oh man. Uh, like that's you can put you can put the pin in it. That is where it happens. That's where modern Marvel Comics starts. But no, you're absolutely right. If you want to reference that, if there's like, uh, we did something, um, and I was I was like, oh hey, I want that I want that specific Jim Aparo Batman look. Mm-hmm. You know, like where he's got the 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 rope down and he's swinging, uh, or I want like this Todd McFarlane Spider Man pose, or I want this shot from 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 Star Wars, or I want this. Uh, we did uh, a Sleepwalker book where oh. Sleepwalker is going through yeah. uh, like the, the Infinity Stones, right? He's in, mm-hmm. Each Infinity Stone has a world inside it. And we did uh, this one for the Power Stone, which was basically like, it's a big fighting world. And the guy who's kind of the embodiment of that was, uh, was this guy that uh, Chad came up with, who's called Dynamax. And Chad was like, oh, he's Ric Flair. He's just professional wrestler Ric Flair. Here you go. If Ric Flair had an Infinity Stone, that's what you're drawing. And Todd Nock was drawing that, and she was like, "Got it." And there was a scene in there where, like, he fights Sleepwalker, and I was like, "Oh, I want him to do this specific wrestling move." And it was a, a Kyrie Sane elbow drop. And so I went and found a clip, and I sent it to him, and I was like, "This is what I would like to be in this panel." He drew it, like. Because boom right there, yeah. Because it's a fun, like it's a fun thing to yeah. draw. You can you can throw out like yeah, they put their hands on each other's shoulders and do the Sailor Moon thing. You're like, are you familiar with Naoko Takuchi and the Sailor Moon anime? Yeah. <laughs> and you can always, always tip for writers. Always put in reference if you yeah. if there's and anything people, specific like, that you like want. Us here love to see those references. Yeah. Our uh, Paul so, Tobin, I know for a fact because uh, I've talked to him about it. He keeps like a running folder of fashion. Like, oh, yeah. Of like, you know, hey, here's what like people actually think is cool fashion right now. And so, well, like, when he does a book, he'll be like, I think, you know, uh, 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 the blonde phantom should wear this dress, you know, like, and it's, it's important to him that those books have, you know, characters who look fashionable. And so he has that reference to provide. Uh, if you're a writer, Keep a folder of reference. Keep a a folder. Like I have for Dracula, I have pictures of castles. I have RPG art. I have all kinds of stuff that I'm like, this is not the look I'm going for, but it's the feeling I'm going for. So it's, it's, that's what's fun about making a comic is that you're having a conversation with the artist that nobody gets to see. They only see the finished product. So however you get there, that's the cool secret mystery. (laughs) Well, wait, Chris, you mentioned fashion. And obviously, right now, all eyes are on the Hellfire Gala. And I'm doing a crossover with a podcast called Imperious Rex. And we are. (laughs) And we're going to talk about the Hellfire Gala. What are your thoughts on the Hellfire Gala? 
I think it's great. I Matt Wilson and I were talking about this on Warwick and Ajax not too long ago. Is like the Marvel swimsuit specials. Yes, I love those so much. Yeah, and they're kind of bad, but they're also kind of great because you know they're in on it. They're all in on the bit. They know it's ridiculous. And I'm like, yeah, they should still be doing that. They should do that. Like, pick a theme, do an art book every year. Like, it doesn't have to be a swimsuit special. It can be the Hellfire Gala. It can be, uh, like, any... Like, it can be it can be a coffee shop AU. Do you know how much a Marvel Comics coffee shop art book would... would I don't know if it would sell, but it would definitely get attention. Like, yeah. If you had like, oh yeah, all, all the Marvel characters here, they are working at working with their Marvel coffee. Like, <laughs> yeah, like people would love it because people love seeing those fun, interesting, like so, so occasionally goofy twists on. Yeah, they do. Yeah, and it's and it's fun, and I think the Hellfire Gala has really captured that. Like, it, it's captured that sense of fun, but also it's mm-hmm. like. Because we have like the real Met Gala to compare it to, and like, bu- buddy, if I could, if I could get Lana Del Rey's Seven Sorrows outfit, <laughs> I would. With the swords, oh, beautiful! Like, yeah, it's like okay, we're doing this. We're doing like <laughs> wild high fashion stuff. Like, it's fun. It's really Who fun. is your? Fa- which has been your favorite Hellfire Gala look? Emma. Oh wait, which one? The the the. <laughs> the one with the cutout. Oh, with the boob window? Yeah. I love that one too. I love I like it. the fur and her yeah. hair like that. My my bestie is a fashion model and um excuse me, she's a fit model and she has occasionally done runway. And I showed her Emma's look there and she loved it. That was like her Tom Brown moment on the carpet. I am so excited for the Hellfire Gala for yeah, that like, reason. I, I mean, like, honestly though, they're all pretty good. Like, I, I'm looking at them now. It's like, because what it is is the, the thing that makes it work so well, whether it's the Hellfire Gala or whether it's the Marvel Swimsuit Special or whether it's whatever it is, these are characters who are designed to be visual. These are characters who are designed to tell a story with how they look. And so all you have to do is more. You just have to take that and you make it more. Like if you look at the, like the, the Rachel Summers one, Bigger Spikes. Bigger yes. Spikes. Oh, and uh, walking Amazing Baby with that red hair. You know that's Madeline Pryor's wig that she's using to walk Amazing Baby. Yeah, yeah. It's like, it's fun, right? Like, you just, you take them three steps further than would ever work. Because it's like, nobody wants to draw those costumes every day. (laughs) Like, you you know what? You know what costume uh, people who draw comics like to draw? Barry Allen. (laughs) Yeah. Very simple and fast. Yeah. That's why also in Sailor Moon, why when she's in her schoolgirl Usagi outfit, the brooches aren't as detailed or even when she's transformed. Because like, how do you hit, you can't do that level of detail yeah, and all of that, all those elements to an outfit. Even the basic Sailor Senshi designs are not as elaborate as they are in Neko Takeuchi's, uh, in the manga or in the original yeah. Takeuchi designs. Like Venus doesn't have her cool little belt. Uh, there's you know that. ruffles on the sleeves that don't translate because yeah. that's not hard to draw. It's it's wait. We've always said that um, like my opinion, 
and and Matt Wilson's opinion. We've talked about this on, on Ajax. Best costume in comics. Who who is your pick? Best costume in all of superhero comics. Oh man, that's not. Oh, you know, I mean, for me, my favorite costume, and this is subjective, not objective, mm -hmm. would be Jean Grey in her white phoenix outfit. I love it. I think it's simple. I think it pops really well. I love Mark Silvestri's art. I know that's not the first time that costume appeared, but I love it. I think yeah. in terms of like, which one is the best one objectively, I think Spider-Man, because it does Bingo. a trick. Correct. It does a trick. Yeah, yeah. Correct. Yeah. <laughs> it's Spider-Man. Like, yeah. I, I honestly, like Jean, like Phoenix, Dark Phoenix, White Phoenix, like that, like of the three of them, I like original green and yellow Phoenix the best, but like that look is so striking and so good. Like, but like best costume in comics is Spider-Man. Yeah. Because it shouldn't be. Because it's because <laughs> if you told somebody you have to draw this, if you have to draw this for the next 50 years, four times a month, it's bad. It's like, yeah. yeah um, you can't see his face. Uh, so it so he has no way of showing his emotion. It's covered in webs, so you have to draw details. Uh, yeah. and it's it's got gloves and boots, but it's not really clear how they connect to the rest of the outfit or where like the, like everything kind of like there's stripes down the sides. It has two different logos, one on the front, one on the back. One on the back, yeah. Uh, yeah. And uh, he's and a spider, so of course it's bright red and blue. <laughs> but the genius of Steve Ditko is you look at that suit and you're like, that is the best costume in comics. ever. Yeah. 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 It's it's, great. You're absolutely right. Um, so Sailor Moon Eternal is coming to Netflix. Did you, did you ever think we would live in a world where Sailor Moon was going to be released on Netflix? And I'm kind of like angry that it's being released like six months after the fact. Like I love Sailor Moon so much. But like Toei needs to know how to like manage this franchise. Like I just think it's been so poorly managed since the the nineties anime. But what do you, what are your thoughts? Uh, I'm not surprised. Like I'm really not surprised. Like I'm surprised it hasn't happened sooner. Yeah. Honestly, because like when 2014 hit and it was like and Sailor Moon was back because Crystal was coming back and they put the nineties anime on Hulu like. I mean, I, I launched a podcast. <laughs> I was so excited, yeah. you know? Like, me and Jordan, like, because we were, we were uh, working on, uh, we were talking about X-Men already. Yeah. Uh, and so we were like, we were like, oh, let's, like, let's talk about Sailor Moon with each other. Because it, it was like that fall. It was like fall of 2014 that we started yeah. the podcast. Because we had been in, you know, obviously we've been talking more as we were working on X-Men, but we'd also been talking about Sailor Moon. Uh, so like the amount of stuff and the amount of excitement that I saw as someone who didn't necessarily, like, I didn't necessarily like fall out of liking Sailor Moon. Sailor Moon stopped being around. Yeah. Like, like you kind of, there wasn't any for a yeah. really long time. Like, but in rapid succession, the nineties anime, Crystal, Kodansha put out new versions of the, uh, the manga, and then Kodansha put out newer versions of the manga, which makes the, this bookshelf completely useless over here. <laughs> and I then I the saw Eternals. the mixed ones. I want to get the Eternals, but I'm like, uh, are they just going to release like a newer version with like fully colored? I don't know what the rumors are. I can't keep up. But Welcome to comic books. 
<laughs> I feel like I can follow comic books a little bit more because I can go on someone's Twitter and like really follow along or like decipher hints. With like Toei and Sailor Moon, you're basically in the dark until they drop the information and then there's right. no information whatsoever. And it's kind of even vague on what they're doing. Like I, again, like I've seen a couple of the manga pages like colored for Sailor Moon, but I think like they're supposed to be releasing a colorized version of the manga, but is that only digital? I don't know. But like th that excitement was so huge that I was like genuinely shocked that like yeah. that there wasn't more because like yeah. I like but but there kind of was you know like they, they did the live show tour in America that that we both was... went to they they did uh, the um, like the the release of the movies in theaters like I saw the R movie in theaters cried in the theater watching Sailor Moon. I... Oh my god, that's I love that. I wanted to see the the movies in in the theaters, but I didn't get a chance to. I forgot why. And I was in I I, I was in New York. It's no excuse other than like I just forgot. But I feel like there could have been a bigger like. Here's my thing, and I love Sailor Moon. I love Sailor Moon Crystal. I love Pretty Guardian. I just feel like Sailor Moon Crystal was a little bit of a letdown for some fans, and I'm just glad that we're getting something like Sailor Moon Eternal, and the rollout feels a bit more tight and the animation looks great and i'm not expecting it to be anything other than a direct adaptation panel for panel of the manga which is kind of it doesn't try i love naoko takuchi but like her version of sailor moon is sailor moon up in the sky holding a crystal singing and dancing while all the other senshi just yell out sailor moon sailor moon here's our power and everyone gets upgraded and that's it yeah, I feel like if you watch the anime with your emotions, yeah, and you read the manga, like you can not look at the words, almost yeah. like because like, it's all about this beautiful flowing art. Oh my right? god, the like, art is beautiful. It's it's like you know, it, it's like the wave off kind of guy. Like, you know, it's it's this beautiful like flowing thing. It's and then it's occasionally so alive. Yeah. <laughs> Like Jupiter oh shows God. up and fucking murders Jedi. Yes, Jedi gets like, burned to death. But it's Jedi. beautiful. But it's like, beautiful. No, and, and I don't want to rag on it at all because I love the manga. Like, I, I think the manga as, as a comic format, I love it. And I could internalize the story. I don't think it translates that well, a direct translation, panel for panel, into, like, a series. I don't, it, it falls a little short in terms of pacing and plotting. And then, you know, when Crystal was Crystal was coming out, they try to replicate that beautiful art style on a very rushed, limited budget, and it did not work. And it's not to rag on Crystal at all, but it, it just objectively. It's weird because, like, like, Sailor Moon and Codename Sailor V are so different. Because yeah. Codename Sailor V is, like, very story-driven. It's, like, very it wacky sitcom story-driven. And Sailor Moon is very lofty and mythical. And, yeah. uh, like, even the kind of, you know, down-to-earth, like, I'm Sagi Skino, I'm 14 years old, I'm Cancer, blood type is oh, Like, like that stuff is, like... That's my that favorite part of the of podcast, ethereal. by the way. You doing the <laughs> intro. Like, Jordan, can I please have two minutes, two minutes, and then you just speed race through it. Yeah, I, I stopped doing that a while back, but I'm going to have to yeah. do it for episode 200. Oh my god, I'm excited for that. You have to do the whole thing. Yeah. Uh, are you are you gonna watch Sailor Moon Eternal when it drops? Or are you waiting to watch like Crystal? I don't know if you've watched Crystal. That part has been murky for me. Uh, I have not watched Crystal. 
because I don't know how Sailor Moon ends. <laughs> oh, <laughs> like, I okay. still don't. Like, I still have never seen the last episode. And I've told people, like, usually if you are about to watch the last episode of a 200 episode show, like I can, like I can figure out what's going to happen in the last episode of Star Trek, the next generation. That's only 175. Uh, but if like, if I've watched 199 episodes of a show and I don't actually, like I have no idea what's going to happen in 200. <laughs> like uh, I don't want to spoil that. That's why I have, I've never finished reading the manga either, but like uh, I don't think I'm going to do Whatever form the, the podcast continues to take in the future, if there's a, a form that the podcast continues to take in the future. Mm. Uh, I don't think I'm going to do the the going in with with there being an endpoint of what I've seen, like there was with uh, like there was with the, the ninety two anime, because I feel like that's part of the experience of being our age and having watched Sailor Moon. Is there's a point where you didn't see what happened next? Yeah. If you weren't, unless you were like. Getting bootlegs from a guy, <laughs> uh, like it just stopped. Like Sailor Moon just stopped being around, and yeah. so for me, part of the experience of this past six years of doing this podcast was eventually I will get to, I will find, I will know it. I'll do the thing I could never do with the X Men, which is know it all. I will get to the end of it. Uh, so, like, I, I don't think I'll do that necessarily because I've already watched like. I haven't watched Crystal because I wanted to wait for the cleaned up versions of Crystal. Although I will say people ragged on Crystal so much that having not seen it, the contrarian in me just wants to dig in my heels and go, Crystal's great, actually. Crystal, I think, you, you, you just don't get it. Crystal's beautiful. I think the cleaned up versions are really good. Here's the thing that happened with Crystal. I think a lot of people were expecting a little bit more original content from it and not being such a direct adaptation of the manga i think if you go in knowing that you're you're basically going to see an animated version of the manga and the cleaned up blu-ray versions it it's fine it's yeah. fine i i feel yeah. like the it gets so season three is really good and my husband had never read the manga and he enjoyed season three because it's so different from sailor moon s it truly is the, the thing about crystal is like I'm not, I'm honestly not sure what people were expecting, if not that, because like it had been 17 years since the end of Sailor Moon. It has to be reintroduced. Like, and, and I feel like, I, I also feel like doing Crystal with like modern animation and that kick ass theme song. That I theme love song, Moon Pride. Well, Sailor Moon, Moon always Pride, has great music. Like, oh, I like, I, look, I like. Uh, I like the the original theme song. I like Maiden's Policy. I like uh, the the uh, Stars theme song. But I like know. Moon Pride is a bang. Moon Pride's on my workout playlist. No, I I listen to it when the plane is taking off. I listen to it while I'm jogging. I love Moon Pride, and I love the new one that I'm totally forgetting the name. But uh, wait, I think it's Moon. It's like Moonshade or Moon Kaleidoscope. It's one of the final battles in Eternal. But um, yeah, Sailor Moon always gets the music right. And I love yeah. that about yeah. it. I like the, the one thing I want is I want the, the, the I will probably be disappointed. I want the attacks to look, I want every attack on a new Sailor Moon show to look as good as the best attacks on the, the, the original anime. Because like, Moon Tiara action is not like dynamic. Like I want, I want her to hit something. 
like, I, like the the one uh what, what is it it's a uh the kaleidoscope one yeah uh kaleidoscope where she's got like the the, the baton that she's like doing a sword and she does the yeah the moon gorgeous meditation moon gorgeous meditation that animation is dope as hell and that's oh, kind of how i, I want everything to look but i it's i think you will be pleasantly surprised i'm not going to spoil anything for you but i think you will be surprised i think objectively they approach the attacks in a variety of ways so when you start watching it you know i can't wait to hear your thoughts chris i can't believe i'm talking to you for almost two hours you've been a voice in my head for a couple years now and this was uh this was really fun i I feel like i didn't actually talk to you too much about uh about uh, my x-men comics but hopefully i gave you (laughs) something no you gave so much i love organic conversation and i just love I, I mean, you said it best. It's like when you host a podcast, you want a guest to come on and you want them to talk and you want, you just want to facilitate that. And you obviously are pro and I'm obsessed and I love you and I love Jordan so much. So thank you for inspiring me. And then, and, and, and giving me the spark to create this own community because like I'm having a kick-ass time and that would not have, I would not have found this happiness had it not been for what you guys did. So thank that- you. That is so nice of you to say, and I'm and I'm glad. I'm glad that 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 you heard the show and it made you want to do something uh, that is that is going really well for you. Uh, that's happened with a, a couple of people. Um, if you if you enjoy sailor business, uh, then you should probably check out the Jim Jam, which is the show about Jim the holograms that I was a guest on a couple of times because I also love oh, Jim the holograms. Oh, that's right. Yes, uh, that's right. I forgot about that. Oh, that's awesome. That was that was inspired by sailor business. <laughs> uh, and uh, Xena Business, which is technically inspired by Sailor Business, but <laughs> at this point, more about me and Allie uh, trying to figure out how we can appeal to the, uh, the, the foot fetish market and maybe get some money <laughs> uh, by talking about Xena and Gabrielle's feet more than we do. That's, that's my big plan for retirement. Yes. Chris, uh, where, can, where can people connect with you? Uh, you can find everything that I do by going to the-isb, India Sierra Bravo.com. Uh, that is my website. It's Chris's Invincible Superblog. It's where I started writing back in 2005. Uh, but it's also uh, now basically just links to everything that I do. Uh, I do a, a bunch of podcasts. Uh, we've talked about Sailor Business. We've talked about War Rocket Ajax, which is the weekly comics podcast that I do with Matt Wilson. Uh, I, I do a show called uh, Apocrypals, which is a bi-weekly podcast that is basically sailor business, but for the Bible. Uh, yes. And it's the premise is that it's, it's two non-believers reading the Bible, but we try not to be jerks about it. <laughs> uh, and it's, it's me. That sounds so interesting. Uh, yeah. It's, it's, it's me and uh, Benito Serrano, who's a comic book writer uh, who has a, like, he also is a fluent Latin and Greek speaker and has a master's in classics. Uh, and so he has all of the like prior knowledge of uh, the hagiographies and the, and the history stuff. And I'm reading a lot of, I'm reading most of it, honestly, for the first time. Uh, but if you, uh, if you haven't read it, or if you haven't uh, listened to the show, uh, we, we've gotten a lot of really good responses. People seem to really like it. I, I feel like the St. Patrick episode is a good one to, to try out. And I feel like episode 50, which we did Revelation, uh, where we where we had to come up with a new name for uh, Babylon, because <laughs> because there are words we don't say on that show, yeah. uh, 
And I think we did a pretty good job <laughs> figuring out what to call her. Uh, so uh, definitely check that one out. It's very fun. Uh, I enjoy doing it. That's every, that comes out every other Sunday at 10 a.m. because that's about when I went to church as a kid. Uh, you know, about half the time. No, I grew up, I grew up here in Miami. I went to Catholic school growing up and I was at church every Sunday. I've read the Bible. That's why I, I have a deep understanding of the Bible and, and I find it very odd how a lot of people like to quote it but haven't read the entire thing. And You, you ain't kidding. Like, uh, and, but like, uh, if you like me and you have that knowledge, you should listen to Apocrypals. So I think so, no, I'm, so I, so I, I went on a Karen Armstrong kick. She wrote a case for God, which she documents the historical context of God and how the idea of Yahweh came to be and how the Bible came to be and the idea of the symbolism and how the, the, the transcendence is where God was supposed to be. And, I love that. And so thank you for creating yet another thing I'm going to be obsessed about. So thank you. Yeah. We're, uh, we just put up episode 89, uh, which in addition to the, the Bible, like, cause obviously there's 66 books of the, the Protestant, oh. the one, the one I have, the Protestant yeah. Bible, <laughs> uh, but we also do saints. Uh, and then we've done a couple of special episodes. Episode 64 was episode Nintendo 64, where we talked about the wisdom tree Bible games, uh, episode 88, was uh, we did a full length commentary track for the Da Vinci Code. Oh, uh, it was very fun. We've done like one that was like Benito quizzing me on on Bible stuff to see if I had actually retained anything that I had learned. Uh, and we always do like big uh, Christmas episodes with uh, Advent Saints. Obviously we did Saint Nicholas the first year. So, uh, but yeah, um, that honestly, if you if you like sailor business or if if you're interested in things with complicated continuity and a lot of references to X-Men comics, and <laughs> we frequently talk about Roy Thomas, then definitely uh, Parker Bells is the way to go. But uh, there's, you can also find my comics there. Uh, you can find things that I've written. I, I was a professional uh, critic and uh, uh, comedy writer for 15 years online. So lots of stuff linked there. Uh, but thank you for checking that out. And thank you for having me. This has been... Very, very fun. This is, oh, I really no, enjoyed the conversation. I, I, again, I'm in disbelief that I'm actually talking to you. So thank you so much for joining us today. Yeah, of course. Thank you. All right. All right, guys. I am the Uncanny Dayspring signing off. Well, thanks, Sugar. The age of apocalypse is now over. And we'll see you next time.